Welcome. You've tuned in to class number four on the subject of analysis of Christian experience and assurance of salvation. We are in chapter three of Archibald Alexander's book called Thoughts on Religious Experience. If you want to follow that book online, it is at gracegems.org. Click on the tab that says Books, alphabetically Archibald Alexander, and you will see the table of contents of the chapters of this book. I thought that today I want to enlarge on the new birth and talk about its counterfeits, false conversions, but do it in a way that could be helpful. He starts out with this helpful paragraph because we're going to be using Jonathan Edwards. In the experience of President Edwards is recorded by himself, we do not find an account of any deep and distressing convictions of sin at the beginning of his religious course. Though afterwards, perhaps few men ever attain to such humbling views of the depth and turpitude of the depravity of the heart. But his experience differs from that of those mentioned above in that his first views of divine things were clear and attended with unspeakable delight. He says, quote, The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward secret delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read these words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as those words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy the God and be wrapped up in Him in heaven, and be as it were swallowed up in Him forever. From that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered, and so on. Alexander comments on this, and he says, The difference between this and many other cases of incipient piety is very striking. And yet these views and exercises do not come up to the standard which some set up in regard to Christian experience, because they are so abstract and have such casual reference to Christ through whom alone God has revealed a man as an object of saving faith. And if there be a fault in the writings of this great and good man on the subject of experimental religion, it is that they seem to represent renewed persons as at the first occupied with the contemplation of the attributes of God with delight, without ever thinking of a mediator. But few men ever attained, as we think, higher degrees of holiness or had made more accurate observations on the exercises of others. And this is a paragraph I want to draw attention to as we quote from the Religious Affections and other works by Jonathan Edwards on this subject. His writing on a treatise of the Religious Affections is too abstract and tedious for common readers. 
but it is an excellent work, although I think it's 12 marks, and he's talking about the 12 positive marks that indicate that you have been born again, might with great advantage have been reduced to half the number on its own plan. The experimental exercises of religion are sure to take their complexion from the theory of doctrine entertained or which is inculcated at the time. Jonathan Edwards, writing in his introduction to the religious affection, says, There is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and what more concerns every individual person to be well resolved in than this. What are the distinguishing qualifications of those that are in favor with God and entitled to his eternal rewards? Or which comes to the same thing, what is the nature of true religion? And in what lies the distinguishing notes of that virtue and holiness that is acceptable in the sight of God? And that's kind of a difficult way of putting this. The way that I would put this is, if a person has in fact been born again, and born again, and regeneration are synonymous terms to come under the effectual calling of our confession in the Westminster Confession, Chapter 10. What are the fruits? What are the indications that a person has passed from death unto life? If regeneration is a change in the governing disposition of the soul, the governing disposition, the helm of the soul, the mind, the will, and affections, how are they affected? We want to see what are the minimal things that we should see that would stand out to indicate that a person has passed from death unto life. And as I think back on the things over the years as I've studied Edwards and others, one of the most helpful sermons, though it is frightening maybe at first, is his hypocrisy deficient in the duty of prayer. And we'll talk about that in a moment and why the subject there is so very important. Edwards writes, there is indeed something very mysterious in the new birth, that there could be so much good and so much bad mixed together in the church of God, as it is a mysterious thing and what is puzzled and amazed many a good Christian, that there should be that which is so divine and precious as the saving grace of God, and he's talking about in the soul of a believer, and the new and divine nature dwelling in the same heart with so much corruption, hypocrisy, and iniquity in a particular saint. Yet neither of these is more mysterious than real, and neither of them is a new or a rare thing. In another paragraph in the introduction, Edwards wrote, It is by the mixture of counterfeit religion with true religion, not discerned and distinguished, that the devil has had his great advantage against the cause and kingdom of Christ, all along, up till now. It is by this means principally that he has prevailed against all revivings of religion. To make this subject even more challenging, there is a work that we have discussed before called the work of the Holy Spirit. His lesser work, convicting, enlightening, that falls short of the new birth that is on the temporary believer. And to help us here, I'll just quote a couple of paragraphs from A.W. Pink from his commentary on Hebrews 6, 426, but you can find this online. It is called The Twofold Working of the Holy Spirit. A.W. Pink talks about or writes about the Spirit's work 
upon a non-elect, or what we would call the temporary believer. We begin by inquiring upon what does he work, we answer, upon the faculties of men's souls. First, he works upon the understanding. There are in all natural men faculties of understanding, will, and affection. A man could not love God unless he had in him the faculty of affection. A stone could never love God. So a man can never understand spiritual things unless he had the faculty of understanding. With the elect, the Holy Spirit renews the understanding, Romans 12.2, compared with Titus 3, verse 5. But with the non-elect, he only enlightens or educates it. Secondly, the Holy Spirit works upon the affections of the natural man. There is in fallen man a natural devotion to a deity. This is evidenced by the fact that practically all of the heathen worship some god or other. In Acts 13, verse 50, we read of devout women being stirred up against Paul and Barnabas. They had a devotion in them which is common to mankind. Now let men bring their natural devotion to the scriptures, and they will come to know of the true God, and learn to reverence him also, yet is that only nature improved? Through the word, the Holy Spirit may, and usually does, convince its reader that the maker of heaven and earth is a true God, and therefore worthy of honor and homage. The fact is, though, very few indeed recognize it. Again, there is in every sinner the natural recognition that his sins deserve eternal death, and that God, unless he is appeased, will punish him. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit upon the temporary believer. He is temporary. He seems to manifest and makes an outward profession, and to appearance seems like a true Christian indeed, but since there is no change in the governing disposition, the heart is still at enmity against God, Romans 8, 7, and by degrees he will go back to the world because he has no real affection to the God that he professes has changed him. So when we're looking at the fruits of regeneration, we want to see those things that are permanent, not temporary. And the very first thing, and just to cut to the chase, to get to the heart of the matter, is of all of the sermons that I've read on Jonathan Edwards and others on this subject, for example, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon, uh, True Grace in the Saint, compared to the experience of devils, but it's his hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer that brings so much light to the subject because a real convert, one of the first things that is going to stand out in a heart that has been changed, a heart that was at total enmity against God and now has a new disposition to have holy affections towards him, the very first thing that should be manifest to himself and then to others is because he has been granted a Holy Spirit enabling him to cry, Abba, Father, there is going to be a spirit of prayer within him. An Edward sermon called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer, taken from Job 27, verse 10, will he always call upon God? The thing that is trying to be established is if a person is not in fact born again, he will not always call upon God. And how does this happen? 
In the part called Doctrine of Discernment, he says, however, hypocrites may continue for a season in the duty of secret prayer. Yet it is their manner after a while in a great measure to leave it off. In speaking upon this doctrine, I shall show one how hypocrites often continue for a season to call upon God, and next how it is their manner after a while in a great measure to leave off the practice of this duty. So let me read here the main points. Hypocrites, false converts, call on God for a while after they have received common illuminations and affections. This is the same thing that Eddie W. Pink was talking about. The common illuminations of the Holy Spirit and the affections being moved, though they are not true affections for God, they are affections to a God that is a figment of their imagination or one that they think has recently been reconciled to them. While they are under awakenings, they may, through fear of going to hell, call upon God and attend very constantly upon the duty of secret prayer. And after they have had some melting affections, having their hearts much moved with the goodness of God, or with some affecting encouragements and false joy and comfort, while these impressions last, they continue to call upon God in the duty of secret prayer. Now in the second heading, Edwards writes, it is a manner of hypocrites, after a while, and a great measure to leave off to practice of this duty, the duty of Closet prayer, secret prayer. We are often taught that the seeming goodness and piety of hypocrites is not of a lasting and persevering nature. It is so with respect to their practice of the deity of prayer in particular and especially of secret prayer. They can omit this duty and their omission of it not be taken notice of by others who know what Christian profession they have made so that a regard to their own reputation obliges them still to practice it. If others saw how they were neglecting it, it would exceedingly shock their charity towards them. But their neglect does not fall under their observation, at least not under the observation of many. Therefore, they omit this duty and still have the credit of being converted persons. Men of this character can come to a neglect of secret prayer by degrees without very much shocking their false peace or carnal security. For though indeed for a converted person to live in a great measure without secret prayer is very wide of the notion they once had of a true convert, yet they find means by degrees to alter their notions and to bring their principles to suit with their inclinations. In other words, their practice they can suit it to their false conversion without disturbing their false peace. Edward says, and at length they come to that in their notion of things, that a man may be a convert and yet live very much in neglect of this duty. In time they can bring all things to suit well together. Their false hope of heaven, with an indulgence of sloth and gratifying carnal appetites, and living in a great measure a prayerless life. They cannot indeed suddenly make these things agree it must be a work of time, and length of time will effect it. By degrees they find out ways to guard and defend their consciences against those powerful enemies, so that those enemies and a quiet, secure conscience can at length dwell pretty well together. We'll talk about 
why this happens in a moment. But I look at most of the churches that I've been in, and you have a Sunday school, and then approximately 20 to 30 minutes of fellowship coffee time before you go into the morning service. And you talk to so many of the professing Christians who secretly, unbeknownst to them, and they have not been alarmed to the danger of this, always look back to the conversion testimony that they submitted to the church. In our church, you submit a testimony, the congregation reads the testimony, they give the testimony publicly before the congregation, and they are received into the church, or baptized, and then received if they have never been baptized as baptized believers before. And yet, their secret prayer and their conversation and their devotions not being there, you can tell from the conversations that you have with them, maybe at a coffee table between Sunday school and the morning service, did you rarely ever hear anything of a spiritual conversation about them? They mix in their secular employment or the football game that took place on Saturday, anything but real spiritual conversation. And I have noticed this for years. In the judgment of charity, I keep it to myself. And the other thing that you fear is spiritual pride or anything like, I thank God that I'm not as other men are. As Jonathan Edwards says in his work on undiscerned spiritual pride, that the saint finds he has so much work to do within his own heart. He isn't busy with the hearts of other people. But the fact of the matter is, it is a black mark. These people never have a real spiritual conversation. And if you, say, go to their house, you're talking to them, maybe they invite you over for the Sunday meal or Sunday evening after church. And the one thing is you get to know some of them, the conversation that never seems to come up is any conversation about the struggle that they have with their remaining indwelling sin. To find in them a confession of anything like Romans seven fourteen to 25, where there Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he says, for I do not do the good I want, but evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I would do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God after my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captives of the law of sin which dwells in my members. And there's not that groan inside. There is not a desire at all for any kind of accountability or some real heart-to-heart fellowship. And we are so far from heeding Hebrew 3.12, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened. Nobody's worried about being hardened, becoming spiritually obdurate, asleep, carnally secure. So this is the foundation is what probably is so in false converts. Return it to Jonathan Edwards' sermons, but they, the false convert, 
the one who made a profession and by degrees has left off the duty of secret prayer. He has no delight in it. How can he? He is still at enmity against God. How do you pray to God with any kind of a delight if you still secretly are hostile and an enemy to him? So Edward says, but they in a great measure leave off the practice of secret prayer, and they do this by degrees. At first, they begin to be careless about it under some particular temptations because they have been out in young company. They have been taken up very much with worldly business. They omit it once. After that, they more easily omit it again. Thus, it presently becomes a frequent thing with them to omit it, and after a while it comes to that pass that they seldom attend it. Perhaps they attend it on Sabbath days and sometimes on other days, but they have ceased to make it a constant practice daily to retire, to worship God alone, and to seek His face in secret places. They sometimes do a little to quiet their conscience and just to keep alive their old hope because it would be shocking to them, even after all their subtle dealing with their consciences, to call themselves converts and yet totally to live without prayer. Yet, to practice the secret prayer, they haven't a great measure left off. So my comments on this is because I have a Facebook group called Thoughts on Christian Experience and Assurance. Uh, think about this. The people that are professing Christians, but they do not see the fruit as they suppose that they should see within themselves. So they are lamenting like Paul in Romans 7 to 14, 7, 14 to 25. These people's consciences, because by degrees, they've left off the practice of secret or closet prayer. They're not the ones that are really, really concerned, the false convert, the ones who are by degrees backsliding in such a subtle way as that their conscience will allow them any omission of secret prayer or any kind of fruit that comes from the new birth. The people that are groaning under their lack of fruit that they believe that they should see, they're the ones that I don't worry about. I just need to help them with their assurance. It's the people that live in the neglect of secret prayer, calling upon God in their prayer closet, seeing him in the need of him for everything, and they are asleep to it. Those are the people that I really worry about. Their conscience isn't bothering them because they have dulled the conscience, seared it maybe with a hot iron, and they're not troubled about these things. But it is important that I talk about the next part of Edward's sermons to the reason why this is a manner of hypocrites to leave off the duty of secret prayer. Edwards writes, Hypocrites never had the spirit of prayer given them. They may have been stirred up to the external performance of this duty, and that with a great deal of earnestness and affection, and yet always have been destitute of the true spirit of prayer. The spirit of prayer is an holy spirit, a gracious spirit. But it is far otherwise with the true convert. His work is not done. And this person may lack assurance. This may be a weak believer. But the work is not done with him. It's only begun with him. And he finds still a great work to do and great wants to be supplied. He sees himself still to be a poor, empty, helpless creature and that he still stands in great and continual need of God's help. 
He is sensible that without God he can do nothing. A false conversion makes a man in his own eyes self-sufficient. He says he is rich and increased with goods and has need of nothing, and knows not that he is wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. But after a true conversion, the soul remains sensible of its own impotence and emptiness, as it is in itself, and in sense of it is rather increased and diminished. A true convert is still sensible of its universal dependence on God for everything. A true convert is sensible that his grace is very imperfect, and he is very far from having all that he desires instead of that by conversion or begotten in him new desires which he never had before. He now finds in himself holy appetites and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a longing after more acquaintance and communion with God so that he has business enough still at the throne of grace. Yea, his business there, instead of being diminished, is, since his conversion, rather increased. But, the hope which a hypocrite has of his good estate takes off the force that the command of God before had upon his conscience, so that now he dares neglect so plain a duty. The command which requires a practice of the duty of prayer is exceeding plain, Matthew 26, verse 41. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, Ephesians 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, Matthew 6, verse 6. It is a manner of hypocrites, false converts, those who are not in fact regenerate, those who may have experienced the common influences of the Holy Spirit. These are the people that Jonathan Edwards is talking about. It is their manner after a while to return to sinful practices, which will tend to keep them from praying. While they were under convictions, they reformed their lives and walked very exactly. This reformation continues for a little time, perhaps after their supposed conversion, while they are much affected with hope and false comfort. But as the things die away, their old lusts revive. And he by degrees returned like the dog to his vomit, and a sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. They returned to their sensual practices, to their worldly practices, to their proud and contentious practices, as before. And no wonder this makes them forsake their prayer closets. Sinning and praying don't agree well together. If a man be constant in the duty of secret prayer, it will tend to restrain him from willful sinning. So, on the other hand, if he allows himself in sinful practices, it will restrain him from praying. To keep up the duty of prayer after he is given loose to his lust would tend very much to disquiet a man's conscience. Also, hypocrites never counted the cost of perseverance in seeking God and of following him to the end of their lives. To continue in instant prayer with all perseverance to the end of life requires much care, watchfulness, and labor. For much opposition is made to it by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And Christians meet with many temptations to forsake this practice. Hypocrites have no interest in those gracious promises which God has made to his people, of those spiritual supplies which are needful in order to uphold them in the way of their duty to the end. God has promised true saints that they shall not forsake him, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will put my fear into their hearts that they shall not depart from me. 
He has promised that he will keep them in the way of their duty, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. And a God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one paragraph from the terrible application, and by terrible I mean frightening, sobering, very solemn application of Jonathan Edwards and Hippocrates deficient, the duty of prayer, taken from Job 27.10. An exhortation. I would exhort those who have entertained and hope of their being true converts, and yet since their supposed conversion have left off the duty of secret prayer, and ordinarily allow themselves in the omission of it to throw away their false hope. If you have left off calling upon God, it is time for you to leave off hoping and flattering yourselves with an imagination that you are the children of God. Probably it will be a very difficult thing for you to do this. It is hard for a man to let go and hope of heaven on which he has once allowed himself to lay hold and which he has retained for a considerable time. Later on he says, why will you retain that hope which by evident experience you find poisons you? Is it reasonable to think and in holy hope and hope that is from heaven would have such an influence? No, surely. Nothing of such a malignant influence comes from that world of purity and glory. No poison grows in the paradise of God. The same hope which leads men to sin in this world will lead to hell hereafter. If your own experience of the nature and tendency of your hope will not convince you of the falseness of it, what will? Now, the next thing that I want to discuss, and I'm only going to discuss two signs, two evidences of regeneration, as there are 12 in Jonathan Edwards' work on the religious affections, but as Archibald Alexander said, some of that's abstract and difficult to apply. My way of putting it is, you couldn't hardly apply some of these things if you did not already have the highest assurance of the reality of your faith, of your conversion. Because if you're doubting your salvation and you're trying to read these marks, you're not going to find them in yourselves because they are the marks that you would see if you were walking and bringing forth spiritual fruit to God. But prayer absolutely has to be there if it is neglected or if it is waning, it is a black mark. But the other thing I would say, and at this, we would turn to the grace and duty being spiritually minded by John Owen. If your thoughts throughout the day are never spiritual, or seldom devotional, that is another black mark, that there has not been a change in the heart. Because the Holy Spirit is begun a good work in you, and he will perform it, and he will draw the mind to God and the things of God, to his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to abound in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. If we live without these kind of thoughts, how could we say then that this new governing principle, this new birth, this new disposition, this change in the mind and the will and the affections has been wrought, if there is not an abounding devotedness to God, spiritual things, reading the Bible, fellowship, prayer, meeting with the saints, and 
singing. These things are going to be there in a new believer. So first, a quote from Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience, quote, If a Christian has set times for prayer and other devotional exercises, but if the mind on such occasions wanders off from the contemplation of those objects which should occupy it, such forgetfulness of God's presence and vain wandering of the thoughts are evidently sinful. And here is an arena on which many a severe conflict has been undergone and where, alas, many overthrows have been experienced by the sincere worshiper of God. So we will set down as a foundation that we know that there are going to be times of wandering in the affections and Tom Times says Octavius Winslow calls it uh, spiritual declension in the soul. There are going to be those times, but as a whole, the bent, the disposition is going to be for spiritual thoughts. Let me quote from the diary of Edward Payson, and I'll describe the condition of the wandering thoughts and distinguish them from a new disposition compared to a false convert in which the things are not there at all. From the diary of Edward Payson, February 19th, what a poor, weak, unstable creature I am when Christ is absent. I read Richard Baxter Saints Everlasting Rest, but though it is very affectingly written, I was totally unmoved by it. But notice, he's lamenting that. He's unmoved by it, and he doesn't want to stay there. He's mourning. He is grieved. Whereas in a false convert, he's not moved that he is not affectionate. He said, February 28th, resolved to spend this day in fasting and prayer. I did so, but found no relief. Was astonishingly dead and wandering. In reading David Brainerd's life, I seemed to feel a most ardent desire after some portion of a spirit, but when I attempted to pray, it vanished. I could not even mourn over my coldness. March 8th, I cannot accuse myself of indulging in any known sin or neglecting any known duty. But I am so lifeless, so little engaged in religious things that I seem to believe and so I believe not. July 18th, very little comfort in prayer. Have fallen into a sad, lifeless state the past week. Hope it will convince me more strongly than ever of my weakness and vileness. Well, inevitably, what would that lead him to? A lamentation of it. A mourning for it. A crying out to God to alleviate it. Those are all things that are common in somebody who, in fact, has been born again. When he notices that his devotions are devoid of life, that he has not the spirit of prayer that maybe he had on another occasion, he doesn't want to stay there. With the false convert, it isn't so, because his lack of the duty of prayer and his living in sin agree very well together, as Jonathan Edwards said in the previously described sermon. Again, David Brainerd, Lord's Day, April 4th. My heart was wandering and lifeless. On the evening of the next day, he complains that he seemed to be void of all relish of divine things, felt much of the prevalence of indwelling sin, corruption, and saw in himself a disposition to all manner of sin, which brought a very great gloom on his mind and cast him down into the depths of melancholy. 
so that he speaks of himself as amazed, having no comfort, but filled with horror, seeing no comfort in heaven or earth. Well, this is his feelings. But those feelings, I say, cannot be there in a new convert without this kind of lamentation, mourning, and groaning. Monday, June 7th, fell still powerless in secret prayer. Afterwards, I prayed and conversed with some little life. God feeds me with crumbs. Blessed be his name for everything. Ruth Bryan, and we talked about that in the last lesson. Ruth Bryan's diary, March 30th, 1828. Quote, This hard heart. Sometimes I cannot pray, but she would pray. She says that she cannot. This isn't because she lacks the new birth. It's that her devotional affections are very, very weak at this time. It doesn't mean that they're not there. This hard heart, sometimes I cannot pray, and when I do try, the heavens seem as brass to my petition. Surely there is no mercy for me, which is a false conclusion. Surely there is no mercy for me. Why? Because I cannot pray as I ought. That's a person who is under an introversion in examining themselves and drawing a false conclusion. May 4th, Sabbath. Have attended a prayer meeting this morning, but without deriving any benefit from it. August 23rd. Some five or six weeks ago, I had some hopes that the Lord was turning my feet Zionward and that I would be enabled to cleave to him with purpose of heart. But now, alas, I have reason to believe I was deceiving myself for my iniquities have taken hold of and conquered me. Well, you're just expressing the description of Paul, Romans seven fourteen to 25. You're in a war. You have remaining sin. Your indwelling sin is luring you back to the world, the flesh, and aided by the devil. She says, I've lost those earnest desires after the enjoyment of piety which I before experienced. So the false conclusion would be because she has lost the earnest desires. The result should be that I am born again. The work has been begun in me. I am not walking as I can ascertain to the light in which I have been given. But you don't unsaint yourself for this. You don't conclude, well, I've been a hypocrite all along, but so many people do that. She says, at times I feel an entire hatred to sin, delight in the privilege of prayer, reading and meditation, and seem to desire nothing so much as to grow in grace and press forward in the divine light. But soon my besetting sins gain the advantage. Satan represents these in the most captivating light. My heart is ensnared, and I sink in the carnal ease and indulgence. Then prayer becomes a burden. Spiritual exercises lose their charm, and I'm brought into dreadful bondage by the tears of an accusing law and a guilty conscience. What's interesting about this language is that people, when they read Romans seven fourteen to 25, conclude that Paul can't be a Christian because he says, I'm sold under sin. But you have to understand that Paul is expressing something that he is experiencing in an existential manner. This is what it appears to me. This is what it feels like to me. In this wrestling with sin, it appears that I'm sold under it, that I'm still under the bondage of it, that I am still its willing captive, that sin is my master and I've never been born again. But a person like that isn't 
crying out in the burden that he feels that the indwelling sin is keeping him from obeying the law of God, which is his delight. And this is the expressions of Ruth Bryan in her diary. Oh, that I knew the secret of real religion, but I fear I never shall. Now, these are false fears. She says, I have so often indulged a hope that I was in the way to its enjoyment and been disappointed that I now know not which way to turn. And shall I believe sink in deep despair or give myself up to work iniquity with those who do not know God? Richard Alain, he was the uncle of Joseph Alain, the author of An Alarm to the Unconverted, has a book called Heaven Opened and in Heart of Flesh, and it really shows these sighs and cries. Not that the heart has never been renewed at all, it has never been made holy or given the ability for holy affections, but that you do not love the Lord as you ought. You feel you have a hard heart. Now, this isn't the expression of a hypocrite who is in a state of carnal security, but this is what he says. And I say this for your comfort. Some people will listen to a class like this and they say, well, that's it. I've never been born again. And they fall into despair and then they get into this vortex, this whirlpool of morbidity, examining their spiritual pulse, this introspection leading them to a constant doubting. But this is the expression of a saint. Quote, Oh, what sorrow-bitten souls are the saints for their lack of sorrow. I mourn. Lord, I lament. I weep. But it is because I cannot mourn or lament as I should. If I could mourn as I ought, I could be comforted. If I could weep, I could rejoice. If I could sigh, I could sing. If I could lament, I could live. I die. I die. My heart dies within me because I cannot cry. I cry, Lord, but not for sin, but for tears for sin. I cry, Lord, my calamities cry, my bones cry, my soul cries, my sins cry, Lord, for a broken heart. And behold, yet, I am not broken. The rocks rend, the earth quakes, the heavens drop, the clouds weep, the sun will blush, the moon be ashamed, the foundations of the earth will tremble at the presence of the Lord, but this heart will neither break nor tremble. Oh, for a broken heart. If this were once done, might my soul have this wish. Thenceforth, my God might have his will. What would be hard if my heart were tender? Labor would be easy. Pains would be a pleasure. Burdens would be light. Neither the command nor the cross would be any longer grievous. Nothing would be hard but sin. Now let's talk about the true convert who has this mourning disposition and compare him to the false convert, John Owen, of the false convert. You have been weary of me, saith God to sinners, and that during their performance of an abundance of duties. Here lies a formal nature of every sin. It is an opposition to God, a casting off of his yoke, a breaking off the dependence which a creature ought to have on the Creator. And the Apostle in Romans 8, 7 gives a reason why he affirms a carnal mind to be enmity against God. The false convert still is at enmity against God. He is not subject to the will of God, 
nor indeed can be, and I say, except for the conscience convicting him, and then he views God as a judge and not as a father, but his conscience will convince him, and he knows he needs to be in a better way. But the fact of the matter is, he really has no heart to it. It never is, nor will, nor can be subject to God, says John Owen. Its whole nature consists in an opposition to him. Aversion, an aversion to God. An aversion is a feeling of repugnance towards something with a desire to avoid or turn from it. Believe it or not, that is in the heart of a temporary believer, somebody who has a false conversion. Secretly, there is still an aversion to real fellowship or worship of God. Our Savior, describing the enmity that was between himself and the teachers of the Jews by the effects of it, saith, and the prophet, My soul loathe them, and their soul also abhorred me. Zechariah 11.8 where there is mutual enmity, there is mutual aversion, loathing, and abomination. So it was between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were enemies and abhorred one another. Opposition or contending against one another is the next product of enmity. He was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them, speaking of God towards the people. Where there is enmity, there will be fighting. It is a proper and natural product of it. Now both these effects are found in this law of sin. Now it is important to distinguish the law of sin's very nature is enmity against God and that person being under the reign and mastered by sin. So a Christian, and this is what John Owen points out in chapter 4 and especially chapter 5 of his treatise on indwelling sin, because sin's nature itself hasn't changed, there still will be aversion in it to God. It knows nothing else but to be its enemy. But it isn't the overall disposition of a believer because there is a new nature in him which abhors that which in him wants to be still at enmity against God or any indisposition to duty in which communion with God is to be obtained, all weariness of duty, all carnality or formality to duty, it all springs from this root of the remains of enmity, enmity and indwelling sin. But he is not any longer under the dominion of it, Romans 6, verse 14. And it's worth quoting John Owen here because he's talking about the difference of Indwelling sin in a believer, this is what he is at war against. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Galatians five sixteen and 17. John Owen says, Let us take into consideration the duties of retirement, as private prayer and meditation, and the like. And I'm establishing that in the false convert, private prayer is left off by degrees until it is left off altogether. Spiritual meditation, by degrees, is left off altogether. But in a Christian, the remains of indwelling sin, that's a whole different thing. Its very nature is an aversion against God. But it isn't even in the ascendancy. Sin can no longer have dominion over him. So he says, in this indwelling sin, there will be an aversion and a loathing oftentimes, and it will discover itself in the spiritual affections. 
A secret striving will be in them about close and cordial dealing with God. So there will be a striving in them. The closer he has in his worship meditations on God, the things will appear. In a false convert, they are a total disposition. Now, as I wanted to point out, the next thing that we really should focus on as an evidence that we have been brought from death unto life is a life of being spiritually minded, not carnally minded. So this is a warning that Owen starts his treatise off with. Again, he says, There are so great and pregnant evidences of the prevalency of an earthly, worldly frame of spirit in many who make profession of religion that it is high time they were called to a due consideration how unanswerable they are in this to the power and spirituality of that religion which they profess. There is no way in which such a frame may be evidenced to prevail in many, yea, in the generality of such professors, that is not manifest to all. So, it's really important as you are reading this to consider that Owen is saying in many of his treatises, not just this, many of the things he's talking about experimental religion, that if you live a life devoid of these things, prayer, not that you've totally left it off, spiritual mindedness, holy affections, not that you have totally left them off, but let's say that you're in a state of declension, a spiritual decline, in a state of backsliding, that if you are in that condition, you cannot have life and peace, is the word to use. What he's saying is you cannot remain in these things and have a real solid assurance of salvation. If you have assurance, if you have peace, and you're living in a neglect of secret prayer, not praying as you ought, not guarding your affections as you ought, you're caught up in the things of this world, you are in a state of spiritual decline, you cannot have an assurance of salvation, if you have peace, you are carnally secure. You may indeed be a Christian, but that is why God is going to bring the chastening rod. He is not going to allow you to stay there, but your conscience won't allow you to stay there either if you are a real Christian. But if these things have the dominion, worldly-mindedness, a lack of prayer, if they have the dominion, if they have the prevalency continually, then that person needs to examine himself to see whether he's been brought from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life, and a change in the affections, a change in the enlightenment of the mind, a change in the inclination, the will. So, after he expounds Romans 8 verse 6 in this treatise, he goes on to indicate what are the spiritual thoughts, what are the spiritual devotions that a man should have. But here is a warning if you are completely without spiritual devotions, thoughts, affections, indicating itself in a lack of secret prayer. He says, so it is with them who are spiritually minded spiritually minded, they must it be with us all if we pretend a title to that privilege. They are filled with thoughts of God. In opposition to that character of wicked men, that God is not in all their thoughts. 
And it is greatly to be feared of many of us. When we come to be weighed in this balance, we'll be found to light. Men may be in the performance of outward duties. They may hear the word with delight and do many things gladly. They may escape the pollutions that are in the world through lust. False comforts may do this. And they may not run out into the same compass of excess and riot with other men. Yet, they may be strangers to inward thoughts of God with any kind of delight and complacency. I cannot understand how it can be otherwise with them, whose minds are over and over filled with earthly things. However, they may satisfy themselves with pretenses of their callings and lawful enjoyments, or that they are not any way inordinately set on the pleasures or profits of the world. To walk with God is to live to Him. It is not merely to be found in an abstinence from outward sins, and in the performance of outward duties, though with diligence and the multiplication of them, all this may be done upon such principles for such ends with such a frame of heart as to find no acceptance with God. It is our hearts that he requires, and we can no way give them to him but by our affections and holy thoughts of him with delight. This is, is to be spiritually minded, this it is to walk with God. Let no man deceive himself, unless he thus abound in holy thoughts of God, unless our meditation of him be sweet to us, all that we else pretend to will fell us in a day of our trial. This is the first thing in which we may evidence ourselves to ourselves to be under the conduct of the minding of the Spirit, or to be spiritually minded. And I have insisted the longer on it because it contains the first sensible egress of the Spirit of living waters in us the first acting of spiritual life to our own experience. Now, this is enlarged in this work, and it would be good for me to have a couple of lessons just on the meat of this book. But because we're following the pattern in Thoughts on Religious Experience, which Archibald Alexander starts with piety and children and goes all the way through the deathbed of the believer, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I thought that it definitely needed a second study because I think it's also going to be helpful. Our next chapter, chapter four, is on causes of diversity or differences in Christian experience, effect of our temperament upon our experience, and especially as of spiritual melancholy as they defined it in a bygone day. I want to, in the next lesson, talk about what I would call the dark night of the soul, and I think at that point we will open up Pilgrim's Progress, Christian and Hopeful in the Castle of Giant Despair, and I think that would be worth our while, but I really had to, and this is very, very minimal, what we talked about in this lesson is very minimal. It does people good to read these diaries, read these biographies, and then read what are the evidences, or as Gardner Spring once named a book, the distinguishing traits of Christian character, or what are the things that absolutely will establish that a person is not a false convert, but has been brought from death unto life. Thank you for tuning into this class, and we look forward to the next one with you.